This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Bunker Global, our weekly roundup of what's happening in news and politics from around the world. I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, the coup in Niger. Military rulers who seized power are refusing to talk to international intermediaries. Disinformation is spreading and there are claims that the Russian mercenary group Wagner is taking advantage of the chaos. What's happening and what does it all mean? Plus, the plot to kill President Zelensky. Ukraine says it has foiled the latest in dozens of attempts by Russia to kill the country's leader and the figurehead of its resistance. How close have the Russians come? And can Ukraine protect the man who's become a hero to the free world? And why was the winner of Thailand's general election barred from becoming prime minister? I'll be talking to foreign policy reporter Ellen Ionis of Vox.com about how populists and conservatives could have struck a deal to lock out the reformist winner. Joining me in the studio to make sense of everything, it's Bunker Global regular Deepo Faloyan, senior editor at Vice World News and author of the book, Africa is Not a Country. Thanks for joining me, Deepo. Thanks for having me. So let's start in Africa with the Niger coup. The military have overthrown democratically elected President Mohamed Bazoum. They've suspended the country's constitution and installed General Abdurrahmani Tishani as head of state. And they're rebuffing attempts by the US and the African Union to find a solution. The coup leaders have even closed Niger's airspace. Deepo, we're now two weeks into the new regime. What What is the latest situation in Niger? Well, we've reached a bit of an impasse after the coup attempts the sort of regional bloc of West Africa, known as ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, released a statement saying that the coup leaders had about a week to give over power. If they didn't return power back to President Bazoum, then all options would be on the table. And they hinted very strongly that there would be military intervention. That deadline has passed. It passed about four or five days ago. And there is pretty much silence from ECOWAS at this point as to what plans they want to take next. There's been a lot of pushback in the region. The idea that, you know, Nigeria, who would be leading the ECOWAS mission, would choose to invade a neighbor at this time hasn't really gone down well within Nigeria and across West Africa. People are hoping that a democratic solution will come about. But in the meantime, the, the coup leaders are sort of sitting back and watching this and, and they're staying pretty strong with their demands that, you know, the rest of the world leave them alone while they sort out their internal matters. The US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told the BBC that the Russian mercenary group Wagner are taking advantage of the coup. And this this has been a bit of a controversial claim. What does that mean in practice? Is it happening? Well, there's very little evidence that this mercenary group have struck a deal with the mm -hmm. coup leaders. There's no real evidence that any of the mercenaries are actually in Niger at the moment. Sort of to take a step back, the context being that previously 
Niger, which is a former French colony, had a pretty strong relationship with France and the US. And in fact, France and US troops were stationed within Niger. Now, this relationship has become fraught in recent years, as it has in Mali and Burkina Faso, and in other areas where France have had less success in building a coherent future relationship. And so at the moment now, the US are concerned that whilst this coup continues, the safety of their troops are being questioned and that the Nigerian coup leaders will then make the decision to join with Russia. That all is up in the air at the moment. France have an opportunity here to try and re-establish a relationship, but it seems like they're not so willing to meddle less in the affairs of their former colonial states. And that is sort of a red line for those states. What's the level of anti-French feeling in Niger? It's pretty high at the moment. Mm. France have long been determined to stay sort of, you know, it'd be sort of described as meddling, but they've, they've, they've long felt that they should continue to have a relationship with their former colonial powers. Now, these countries are reached the point where they're pretty frustrated by this. They don't want France, you know, telling them what they should do economically or socially. And so they've decided that, you know, there's another option for them, and that is to forcibly remove France. And you know, as they do this, they, I think sort of a a key phrase here is sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. The best way to hurt France is to pick someone that France hates. And that is Russia at the moment. And that is certainly Wagner. And so, you know, many of these countries, especially Niger at the moment, are sort of suggesting, you know, should you not respect our boundaries, then, you know, we can very easily go and get arms and economic support from Russia. And so that's the sort of situation that that we're in at the moment. And and it's looking like the coup leaders at some point, you know, might choose to turn to Russia as economic sanctions are being leveled against them at the same time as ECOWAS are threatening to invade them. And so a lot of people are advising, you know, the, the Western allies and and ECOWAS to, to take a, a more gentle approach towards solving this issue. Wagner does have thousands of its mercenaries across the Sahel region. And uh, its leader, Prigozhin, has said the coup leader should give us a call, almost making the kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. of the, the, the hand signal. Is he just stirring the pot? Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, Prigozhin, it's not clear whether Wagner even have the resources at the moment to extend their presence across West Africa. And so, you know, until they can do that, it'd be far easier for them to just sort of stir things around. What they don't want is they don't want Niger to essentially make up with France. They just, they 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 enjoy their presence over the region and, and the idea that, you know, they could perhaps maybe someday get in bed with Niger as they have done, you know, in Mali and in Burkina Faso. And those are only really the two countries and, and the Central African Republic um, that they've sort of seen some success. But at the moment, you know, it's not, necessarily in the interests of the coup leaders to fully make a deal with Russia, considering that Russia is is slightly distracted by a a war in Ukraine right now. What's the level of pro-Russian feeling amongst the Nigerian people? Because we have seen pictures of, after the coup, people running around waving Russian flags in the air. You never know to what extent these are planted or Mm. or created for a photo opportunity. But is, is there a popular sort of swell of support for the Russians? It's complicated. You know, it's similar to asking, you know, what's the support in the UK for the EU, for example. You mm. know, the, you'll, you'll get pockets of support, certainly, for just less interventionism and, and less meddling in, in social affairs. And so, you know, the fact that Russia is offering that right now can be attractive to some people. But it seems the general sentiment is leave us to sort our own issues out. And I think that that is the 
that's the sentiment that the coup leaders are taking advantage of. You know, people are not necessarily pro-military rule, but they are certainly against the Western world trying to dictate to them how they should live their lives. And, yeah. and that's what the coup leaders are taking advantage of right now. Just before we move on, then, is there any way to kind of see how this might play out over the next few weeks? I mean, it's extremely uncertain. It's extremely uncertain, yes. ECOWAS have sort of cornered themselves in with this with that sort of initial threat to invade Niger, essentially. And so it's like, well, they're going to ha- most likely have to backtrack from that and, and try and work out uh, some sort of diplomatic solution. It's not exactly clear what the coup leaders want at this stage, aside from being left alone. It's, it's not clear kind of what relationship that they want to have with the rest of West Africa, let alone the rest of the world at the moment. And a lot, a lot of the cards are in their hands. Uh, you know, the, the US and in the EU and in and, and France and certainly do not want them to create a new alliance with Russia. And so I think that, you know, the coup leaders right now have a lot of a lot of the cards in their hands and they, they have a real opportunity to sort of to set the terms of what happens next. But it really isn't clear, you know, what exactly is going to break this impasse. The Ukrainian security service foiled an attempted assassination attempt on Volodymyr Zelensky last week, reportedly arresting an alleged Russian informant who was gathering intelligence on the president's whereabouts in order to plan a Russian airstrike to kill him. The SBU said it caught a woman from the southern Ukrainian region of Mykolaiv red-handed as she was trying to pass intelligence to the invaders. It's the latest in dozens of attempts on the life of the man who has become a symbol of Ukrainian resistance to the Russians. Putin has been trying to kill Zelensky since day one of the war. Deepa, what do we know about this latest attempt? So it seems to have been a sort of an inside job, which is something that Ukraine haven't really had to face over the last year. Zelensky has been very open that he is target number one for Russian forces and and he has been, you know, incredibly open at the fact that, you know, any day could be his last. The challenge that he potentially now might be facing are more efforts by Russian forces who have been unsuccessful in, you know, really being able to target the people around Zelensky and Zelensky himself are attempts to try and sort of infiltrate uh, Ukrainian society and see whether you can have a, you know, quote unquote, inside job, try and take him out. And so, you know, this is, you know, worrying, but I think that the Ukrainian government have have always been sort of open about the potential for this and, and you know, they, they seem to have plans in place should one of these attacks be successful. This was a Russian sympathising Ukrainian, apparently a former saleswoman in a military store. Mm. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to tell from a distance about, you know, screening and so forth. But does it tell us anything about the extent to which Ukraine may be infiltrated by that kind of a sympathiser? Yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of shows us just what a dangerous situation Zelensky is and, and has always been. He is someone who hasn't locked himself up in a bunker. He believes that it's, you know, his duty to be out there with Ukrainians on the streets. Others are risking their lives and he feels like he should he should risk his life. And as a result of that, he is vulnerable to being attacked and he's certainly vulnerable to being attacked by Ukrainians who might have been flipped by the Russian government. If, you know, if he wants to be out there with the people, then, then that is certainly a risk that he's taking. 
It's hard to imagine how Russia might escalate its war or its attempts to get to Zelensky, but Ukraine's increasingly successful drone attacks mm. can't have made him any safer or made them any less enthusiastic about trying to get to him. Yeah, no, not at all. And, you know, we're reaching the point where you would sort of think the longer the war went on for, the safer he would be. They'd be able to, by now, have, have created a, a pretty solid system of protecting Zelensky. But, you know, that hasn't really been the case. These these drone attacks are, are, are making it uh, more and more dangerous for him to be out in the streets. But he he has sort of said that, you know, he's not willing to go into hiding. His famous line was he needs more ammo and not a rifle. Mm. And, and that is something that he has stuck with. And it's been part of his leadership style, as well as the message that he's giving out to Ukrainians that, you know, we are all in this together. And that's a decision that he's made. And, and he knows that uh, it's going to make him less safe day by day. If the Russians were to succeed and kill Zelensky, it would obviously be a massive worldwide story, a big turning point. Is it a case that if, if Zelensky dies, Russia wins or is there a kind of succession program in place? There is a succession plan in place, as, as reporting has, has shown this past week. Firstly, I think the Ukrainian people would see Zelensky's matter, obviously, as, as a terrible thing. But I think that his message has always been, I'm one of you. I'm not hidden away. I'm not some special figure. I'm out here, you know, fighting alongside you. And and if I were to go, then the, the effort must continue. Mm. And so I think that there would be certainly a feeling across the country that, you know, we, we'd have to carry on. And I think that we can kind of see that in the succession plan that has been sort of talked about over the past week, where they would sort of split a lot of his duties across several members of government. At the moment, if the Ukrainian president dies, then the chairman of their, the equivalent of their parliament would, you know, assume the office of, of the presidency. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of kind of duties across government, then, you know, a, a number of different senior figures have been selected to sort of take over that role. Now, you can only do that when you have broad agreement across government for the direction of the war effort and for what you want for the future of the country. And so you, you see that there does seem to be real unity across government, which seems to be very different to sort of the Russian model and the Putin model, which is all, it's all about me. Yeah. And Putin is the single figure and, you know, he's more sort of hidden away and everything kind of runs through this one central figure who has sort of created this cult of personality across Russia. And so when you think about eliminating Putin and the impact that that would have on the direction of Russia, then that seems to be, that seems to, you'd imagine, be more seismic compared to kind of what you think would happen should uh, Zelensky be killed. As you say, the way Zelensky has presented himself to the world has been a sharp contrast to Putin. Putin is so secretive, so paranoid that we're not even entirely sure not just of where he is at any point in time, but even if it's the right Putin, there are yeah. many, many stories of sort of dummy stunt Putins. Mm. And in fact, many of the kind of meet and greets, the, well, the, the few meet and greets we've seen him involved in since the war have got suspicious recurrent faces in them. Mm. It's like, I thought this was a bunch of sailors in a, in a, in a port in the, in, the, yeah. uh, in the west of Russia. They seem to have turned up on a building site in the east of Russia. So it's like, it could not, the stark, the contrast between them couldn't be starker. Yeah, it's, it, it's completely different. And, and you know, Putin's tactic keeps him in power and and creates this sort of cult around him and this fear of him um, that might be good in staying in power, but you know it doesn't speak to the future direction of Russia. There is no everything that Putin wants requires him to stay alive. It's a pretty big gamble that any one person is playing. Whereas Zelensky 
believes that, you know, the future of Ukraine is safe in the hands of, of his fellow uh, government officials. Yeah. So if, effectively, if Zelensky were to be to be killed, it's unlikely that the Ukrainian war effort would stall. But if Putin was to fall, it's highly likely that Russia would, whoever, so whatever sorts of regime took over, would at least reconsider and possibly begin withdrawals. Yeah, I think it. I think it's almost safe to say that it would certainly end as we know it. The Russian effort uh, should should Putin fall, and that definitely isn't the case. Should Zelensky fall? You know, he has shown himself to be an effective leader throughout the war, and so you know there would be an impact there. But I think that you know the Ukrainian people would certainly want to rally around the senior government officials. There are also within reports suggestions that you know popular. TV presenters and and popular uh, sort of pop culture figures would be brought in in those sort of early stages to help sort of you know rally people and and I think that kind of really speaks to the approach that the government is taking. They know that the people have to be brought along on this effort to to maintain what they're trying to achieve. Whereas in Russia, Putin isn't really making those efforts to bring the Russian people along. It's just you know what I say goes, and that only works as long as you're able to keep speaking, which is made harder if you are killed, of course. Finally, what happens when a progressive party leader wins a general election and the country's parliament simply refuses to confirm them as prime minister? That's been the case in Thailand, where an election was held over two months ago, and yet the country still has no prime minister or government. Instead... The election-winning leader of the Move Forward party has been suspended from Parliament, and it looks like a coalition of Conservatives and Populists could take over. What is going on? I spoke to Ellen Ionis, weekend writer at Vox.com and foreign policy journalist, to find out. Ellen Ionis, Thailand has been in political deadlock since May. Where did this deadlock come from? Why are we here? Right. So the Move Forward party that you mentioned swept to victory in May on the back of young Thai people who really do want to see a change, who have been in economic deadlock for a long time or feel like they don't have the opportunities that they should have. They want to see a more liberal society. They want to see a more liberal government, particularly when it comes to how the monarchy is treated. And that was a really big problem for the more conservative elements of the parliament or of the National Assembly, rather. The upper house is really dominated by these conservative military backed and monarchy backed politicians. And so they have been able to successfully block PETA, the head of the Move Forward Party, his you know, election as PM. So that's where the deadlock comes from. And then now, as you mentioned, it looks like we might have a way forward with the sort of nominally opposition party forming a coalition government. Why is the establishment so implacably opposed to move forward? Are they that radical? Well, I think the big thing is they really are against this Les Majest law, which Uh is basically the law that says you cannot criticize the king. And the monarchy is a really important part of the national character of Thailand. You know, it's been around for centuries and for a long time, people have really identified with the monarchy and, and really seen that as an important part of being Thai. But 
now this idea that you can't criticize the king, especially the current king, who's really quite a character and it does not seem like he necessarily has the best interests of the country at heart. And there have been a lot of crackdowns on protests. There have been a lot of protests, anti-monarchy protests, which are pretty shocking. So this idea that, you know, we could do away with the Les Majest law or, you know, at least really, really oppose that and open up a lot of criticism for the monarchy and maybe even open up the possibility for the monarchy to play a lesser role in politics is really threatening. Is Thailand really a democracy as we understand it? Or does the kind of strong fixation with the monarchy and the big military presence kind of sort of prevent it from being fully democratic? Yeah. So Thailand is nominally a constitutional monarchy, but the monarch really has a lot of power. And the monarchy and the military, you know, they kind of have the last word and the upper house of parliament or of the National Assembly. You know, it it is a lot like your House of Lords in the UK and that like the people who are in power there are closely tied to the monarchy and to the military and the lower houses elected like that really more represents the will of the people. So Thailand doesn't really have independent institutions as much like the court is very much in the thrall of the military and and the monarchy and those conservative elements. And you need to remember that, you know, there have been several military coups in Thailand, like most recently in 2014. So there are not democratic institutions in the way that you would imagine in the U.S. or the U.K. Like nominally, yes, there are elections. Yes, the elections in May were broadly pretty free and fair, as far as we can tell. But there's not really freedom of speech. There are elements of democracy, but I don't think you could call it actually a democratic government, especially not in like the Western sense. What's the way forward then in a a situation where you can have someone win an election clearly by a popular vote, and yet using the mechanics of the existing institutions and just what appears to be an inbuilt kind of implacable wall of refusal to simply reject the people's choice. I mean, as I mentioned, there's a a populist conservative potential lines that might try and form a government, but it'll be a minority government, surely. Well, you have to remember that this is a situation that's not unique to Thailand. I mean, there are many, many places in the world where autocracy is shrouded by and sort of lives in nominally democratic institutions like a vote and where the conservative or the more autocratic elements are actually using the democratic elements to shore up their own power. We see that in different African countries, in Mali most recently, um, I would say, you know, some Latin American countries, like that is not uncommon. So, you know, that's certainly a possibility where, you know, there could be a backlash to the excitement that the Move Forward Party, which is more of a disruptive force rather than like a reformist force, there could really be a lot of backlash to that. That's certainly a possibility. Or there could be, you know, a sense in which the younger generation of Thai people really are motivated to push for more reforms and to push for more democracy. I mean, I think time will tell. Finally, how do you think it's likely to play out? I mean, there's a progressive and quite a charismatic leader in Peter. What would you be betting on? I'm hopeful that this coalition can move forward and, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, you know, with Peter. 
there is a court case up against him about these shares that he owns in a media company that I think is kind of bogus. And that's how he's been sort of now he's been prevented from having any sort of political voice right now. But I don't think he's going anywhere. And I think just the fact that people saw this as a possibility and that he did get so close to power is really important. And it does show us a lot about what young Thai people do want and what their priorities are. And the old guard can't and is not really interested in delivering that. And that's the thing with autocrats is they're not interested in like delivering on what people actually want. They're only interested in staying in power. And that is really hard to maintain. And it's really hard to maintain, especially when people are not getting what they feel like they want and deserve economically. So if you're going on holiday to Thailand, be aware that you're in a very much changing society. Yes. So, I mean, I think that's true. It's a wonderful place to go on your holiday, but, you know, be aware that there's a lot going on under the surface. Ellen Yannis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's the end of this edition of The Bunker Global. Depot for Loan, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me as always. We'll see you again next time. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, we will be back next Friday for another Bunker Global. And of course, there's a new episode of The Bunker every morning. Remember, you can get them early, plus exciting new merchandise for our backers, available now when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bunker Global was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Deepo Faloyan. The producer was Chris Jones with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>